Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for those who are here and, and the weather that's coming our way that you will guide and keep us. And Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we open your word and show us what you would have us to see from this all. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 23. Uh, the last chapter we talked about uh, David uh, having been with the priest two weeks ago and then the priest ended up all dead because Saul accused them of conspiring against them because David lied to them and told them that he was on business for, for the king. And uh, we, we read about how David protected his family by taking them to Moab to be hidden, hidden away from Saul, out of Saul's reach, uh, which indicates to us that Saul was going to go after David's family, or at least David believed that he would, and I have a feeling that they were already going after them is why they went to see David in the first place. So here we are in chapter 23, verse 1. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Keilah, and they rob the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go, smite the Philistines, and save Keilah. And David's men said unto him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we come to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, yet again, and the Lord answered him, Arise and go down to Keilah, for I have delivered the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And it came to pass when Ebiathar, the son of Ahiliak, fled to David to Keilah, that he came down with the ephod in his hand. All right. So here we have, remember, David's gathered about 600 men around him. And in, if you remember the descriptions, they, they were all those that were uh, owed money, were disgruntled, and, and had problems with the king, basically. And uh, so he's praying, you know, he hears about the Philistines attacking Keilah. And Keilah is a town that's northwest of Hebron. And uh, it's not on our maps anywhere. It's kind of, it's just a little small town. And it says that the Philistines attacked this little town. And, you know, it says in, in uh, King James, it says that they robbed the threshing floors. In other words, they're stealing all the goods. Uh, now, the Philistines would have called it plunder and spoil, spoils of battle. The Israelites, of course, call it stealing. <laughs> they're taking their stuff. Uh, because they're not at war really completely with the Philistines. And we have here in this, this story, Saul should be taking care of these people because he's king. He's got the army. And this is probably why David is a little concerned about going up there to helping them. Because if he goes up there and helps them, and Saul comes out to help them, all of a sudden he and Saul meet each other and that's not what he wants to be doing. Uh, but David does what he's supposed to do in verse 2. He inquires of the Lord. And he goes, Lord, should I attack these people? And the word comes back, yes, go attack them. I've given them to you. So David goes to his 600 men and he says, okay, we're going to go deliver uh, Keilah. And they pretty much rightfully say, are you really sure that this is what we're supposed to be doing? Because, you know, look, we're, we're hiding out here in the middle of these fields, you know, afraid of Saul already, and you want to take us to where there's trouble. All right? And this is kind of a thing that we end up doing a lot of times with God ourselves. God says, I want you to go up and do something. We're going, God, I don't know if that's a good idea. You're taking me right amongst those who who might cause me trouble. And they have two fears. Number one, they're not a professional army yet. David's men are not a professional army. And they're going to go fight the Philistine army. So that's one fear. And there's also the fear that if they go up there, Saul might show up. All right? And so we have two fears that they're afraid of. And this drives David back to inquire of the Lord just to make sure he heard right. And God says, go. I have delivered the Philistines into your hands. And David, at that point, 
goes. And this is something that when we get ready to do anything for God or anything in our life, period, we should be going to God and say, God, is this what you want me to do? You know, what, should I be, what should I be doing? And then listen to him. All right. Many times we go to God saying, God, what should I do? And we've already made up our mind what we're going to do. Uh, God, should I go do this? Okay, you didn't say, I didn't hear you say no, so I'm going to go do this. And we don't even give him time to, you know, we get done praying and say, okay, God, you didn't say no right that second, so I'm going to go do it. And then we wonder why we get into trouble. And, you know, this is something that is very important. We need to go to God with our needs and our prayers for everything. Every little thing that we do, James tells us that we should not make plans without saying, if the Lord will. And so often we will make plans, you know, and I'm good about this myself, making plans without asking God because that's the kind of person I am. I just make plans. Uh, it's my temperament, my personality. And I have to remember to bring God in the middle of my plans. Uh, this funeral I went to yesterday, I think God's hand was completely in making it that I had to go to this funeral because he made me so tired that I asked for the day off that was for the funeral. And actually, I feel pretty good now. I'm not as tired as I have been. You know, uh, and I didn't get the sleep that I had intended to do or anything else. But, you know, God sometimes will orchestrate for us his plan in spite of us. And we have to fight against him at those times. And, but David's saying, shall I go? And God says, go. And he goes to God twice. You know, and I can understand the 600 of his men go, you know, hey, David, I, we don't think this is a really good idea. We've been hiding from Saul. We've been hiding with you. And you want to go to this place and fight a professional army and maybe meet Saul. And so David inquires and he says, and God says in verse 4, I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah and brought back their stuff that had been taken. The cattle, you know, whatever produce had been stolen from the threshing floors. And then it came to pass, and this is just a little note. Okay, Abathar, remember who Abathar is. He's the only one of Ahimelech's children to escape Saul's execution when Saul executed the 85 priest and then destroyed the entire town of Nob. Abathar is the only priest to get away, and it says that he brought the ephod. And the ephod was the symbol of the priestly service, and they served God wearing the ephod. Now, he didn't bring the high priest garments and all this, but he brought the servant. So basically, he's bringing a point that God now is with David, is what it's basically saying. The priest is here, ready to serve with David. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal for David. David's getting the blessing of God upon him is what this is bringing in. And because uh, remember, there's so much going on in this period of time, and they look at things as the Jewish religion side of things. They look at things as, do you have the Ark of the Covenant? Do you have the ephod? Do you have, do you have God's priests with you? And this is a big deal. And this is a big deal in most religions, you know, if we have the stuff, if we have the religious stuff, we're okay. Uh, in the early part of the Catholic Church, they gathered up all the relics that they could find. You know, they found all the bones to the, to the apostles that they could find. They, they found the pieces of the cross. Now, if you take all the pieces of the cross, you could probably have four or five crosses or, or a really huge cross. But, you know, but they took and they buried different parts of the bones of the, of the apostles all over the you know, place and built great big cathedrals and chapels over it because they wanted stuff. They wanted the religious stuff. And this happens so often as the stuff becomes what you worship instead of God. If you remember the story when Israel is in the wilderness and the, they have sinned and the vipers come in and they bite the people and, and God says, okay, make a, braz, a, a, braz, a bra, brazen serpent and raise it up. And if anybody just looks at, this, looks at that bronze serpent, they would be healed. Well, over the years, people started worshiping that bronze serpent. And it had to be destroyed by Hezekiah many years later, you know, centuries later, 
He destroyed it because it had become an idol. And this is something that happens in religion. These things become, the thing itself becomes special. And even in churches in America especially, we end up oftentimes worshiping the things, the power of God, the gifts of God. Instead of God himself, we seek the, the gifts, the things. And there's a very famous statement that says, you know, we need to seek the giver, not the gifts. You know, the gifts will come. If we seek God, he'll give us the gifts. And if we seek the gifts, we're seeking the wrong thing. And there's churches out there that are all about gifts. You know, do you speak in tongues? Can you heal people? Can you do this? Can you do that? Well, those are all wonderful things if God gives them to you. But are we seeking God first or are we seeking the gifts? And in many churches, they seek the gifts and not God. And this is something that we want to be very careful of. And this was happening in, in their day and age. They sought the gifts. Remember when we started out in the book of Samuel that Phineas and uh, his brother went out with the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant represented God in their mind. Okay, and, and they figured if, he, if the Ark of the Covenant's there, we can't lose. And what happened? The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant in, as a prize of battle. And remember that whole story about Dagon bowing down and the sicknesses and all that stuff that happened at the beginning of, the, of this book. But you know, God says, you know, there's nothing special about the stuff. I'm God. You know, uh, I know people, as much as I love the Bible and the words in the Bible, to me it's still just a book. Now the words are important because they're God's word, but I know people who won't do anything to their Bible, barely read it because it's so special. But you know, when it gets old or anything, won't get rid of it, won't, won't, you know, won't do anything with it because the book itself is sacred to them. And to me, it's God's words that are sacred. It's his presence that comes from his words. And you know, we want to be careful about how far do we raise these things, these symbols. You know, and it's great to have symbols. It's, it's wonderful to have symbols and know that they represent something special as long as we realize that they represent something. They aren't special in and of themselves. And very important for us to get that because we seek God. And if the symbol helps us seek God, it's fine. If it's not, then it's not fine. At the funeral, I went to a Catholic church and I saw all the symbols. And the you know, thing, thing I thought about most is most of these people have no clue what all these things mean that they're looking at. They don't know the story and the power behind them. And all they are to them is a, you know, do your, do your you know, ritual around them, you know, walk the, walk the uh, stations of the cross and think for a moment about whatever it is they think about and just, you know, hit the, hit the stations of the cross. All these symbols around them and they have no clue what it is they're looking at and what it is behind it. And, you know, which is sad. You know, and yet we can do that ourselves. You know, I've heard especially people who have grown up in the church, they've heard so many of the stories so often, so much, they can tell you the story. But they really don't know what it means behind the story when it shows you God's power. You know, they'll, they'll tell you all about David, David slaying Goliath, but they don't understand that that was him being righteously angry that they were defying God. They don't understand that part. All they know is David went up, killed, killed Goliath, and don't really go beyond it. They'll tell you the story of Noah and the flood without really looking at how much God loved his people and gave Noah 120 years to preach to people to try to fill that ark with people. Not just animals, but there was room for people. And yet nobody got in, decided to come into the ark with him after 120 years of preaching. Uh, uh, you know, we look at some of these guys, some of these prophets, you know, they, they were told, and one, I can't remember if it was Isaiah or Jeremiah that was told, you're not even going to be successful as you preach. Nobody, you're not going to turn the hearts of anybody to you. How'd you like to have that as your promise? It would be bad enough to think you're doing good and not get anybody, but to be told that you weren't going to get anybody, 
would be awful. And yet God's saying, keep preaching, keep teaching. You know, we need to be able to understand that God's will is going to happen. And we look at these different stories that come out and say, God, reveal to me what, what, what you want me to learn from these. And know them deeper than just the surface level that so many people know them at and get beyond the symbols. Uh, you know, we think about the cross and the blood of Jesus. You know, and for a lot of people, that, there's just, those are just symbols. We need to get back to the place where that cross represents the death of Jesus Christ. His blood represents our forgiveness. And, you know, in today's world, the churches are trying to wash away the idea of the blood of Christ. For years and, and millennia, Christianity has been known as a bloody religion because of the fact that we focused so much on the blood of Christ being our forgiveness. And in this day and age, the churches are pulling away from that whole idea of the blood. You know, well, Jesus died for our sins. That's all we need to know. No, we need to know that his blood shed for us, covered our sins, and he presented that blood to the Father at the mercy seat of heaven to forgive our sins, saying, God, you know, Father, I died for them. If they'll accept this gift, we'll accept them. Such a precious gift, and yet we try to push it back so often. And we've got to be able to understand the symbols are so much deeper. Nothing necessarily wrong with the symbol, but we really have to think beyond the symbol to what it really symbolizes. And this is true of all symbols. Human beings tend to forget what, what the symbols represent, whether it's you know, the flag of a country or the blood of the cross and, and the cross or whatever it might be. We, we see the symbol and we forget so often what, what does it stand for? What does it really mean? And here David's getting the ephod. <laughs> okay, and they're making it but it really is an illustration of the power of God coming down upon them. And they've rescued this city. And verse 7, and it, and it was told Saul that David was come to Gil, Gilah, and Saul said, God hath delivered him into my hands, for he is shut in by entering into the town that has gates and bars. And Saul called all the people together to war to go down to Gilah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him, and said to Ab Abathar the priest, bring, bring here the ephod. Then said David, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Gilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Gilah deliver me to, into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant hath, has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech you, tell your ser servant. And the Lord said, he will come. Then said David, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you up. Then David sent his men, which were about 600 and arose and departed out of Keilah and went wherever they would go. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah and he forbore to go forth. And David abode in the wilderness in strongholds and remained in the mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. So David goes to Gila, and Saul finds out that David has gone to Gila. Now instead of celebrating that David has gone to Gila and <laughs> delivered them for the Philistines, uh, Saul goes, okay, I got him now. He's in a city. I can surround the city, and he, and he will be captured. And this is something that is very interesting. He's in, you listen to this, and Saul called all the people together for war. He's only going after David and 600 men. And he calls out the entire nation as if he's going to go to battle against some strong nation. And his idea really is to surround that city and and David's rightly concerned. You know, if Saul surrounds the city, he's going to be captured one way or the other. And his real concern is, will these people in this town turn him over to save, the, save their own necks? Okay, and that's really what he's kind of, you know, worried about. Saul's got them surrounded. If they don't turn him over, then the whole town is destroyed and all the people are destroyed. If they turn him over, Saul will probably release the town. 
And David was kind of hoping, well, I've just delivered these people. Maybe they would be brave enough to protect me. And God tells him, no, they'll, they'll, they'll deliver you. And, uh, and it says in verse 9 that David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief or plotted evil against him. All right. And David's understood this. Remember a couple chapters ago, David understood it and Jonathan didn't understand it. And when Jonathan understood it, he got mad at his dad. All right? And David understands Saul is out to get him. As far as Saul's concerned, David is public enemy number one. He's trying to take the kingdom away. And he wants David dead. Now, if he could get him captured and kill him himself, that would be great. If David was turned over to him, you know, dead, he'd be happy as well. Uh, but David understands Saul is wanting him dead. So he calls the priest and he says, let's check out what God's going to say. I believe that David really understood that to do things right, he should be going through the priest. But David did have a relationship where God, where he could talk to God and be able to be talked back to. Now, he may have had a priest a Levite with him before that, that was the communication. But David is also called a prophet later on. He's a king and a prophet, and God spoke to him in a way that not many people in that time had. Uh, in this time for, for Israel, you went to the priest for any, any talking to God. But a handful of people really understood, just as we do today, that we can go straight to God. And even in that day, they could, go to, they could go to God. Not many did because they were pretty much bound up in their formalism and their worship. And this is what happens when you build a religion. It's all about the forms and the activities and not a personal relationship. We have a personal relationship with God in our day and age. But, you know, there are many Christians that don't have a, or so-called Christians and you know, denominations that don't really have a personal relationship with God. There's many different churches that believe if you're not in front of the church on the altar, you're really not in, in God's presence and talking to him. They don't really believe that you could pray to him anywhere, uh, that you can ask for forgiveness anywhere. You know, and this is true in, in the Old Testament with the Jews. You pretty much, most people believed you had to be at the temple or the tabernacle to be able to present yourself to God. And then there were others that understood, no, we have a personal relationship with God, and God loves us. David was one of those. Most of the prophets were one of them. Uh, Joseph seemed to understand that. Uh, you know, there are many people that understood a, more of a personal relationship with God. Because God has not changed. He's always wanted a personal relationship with his people. He doesn't want it through symbolism and okay I can't talk to God until I've offered my sacrifice and then I can talk to God and God saying no let's let's have our conversation let's let's be intimate and we see even today there's a lot even people who say they're Christians don't really understand that they have a relationship with God to to build upon you know I've known many people go well I got to go to church to get my prayers answered or to to do my service for God so he'll listen to me. And David understood that, but now that he's got a priest with him, he's going to use the priest because the priest represents God as well. Uh, and they, they have that in, the priest have that intimate relationship with God, supposedly. Even though David knows he has an intimate relationship with God, he is going to use the priest and he's going to use the system that's been built. Yeah built around it. It could be for show. It could be. And you, you might actually be right on. He may have been doing it for show for his people. Saying, I'm going to go to the priest. The priest is going to tell me what God says so that you know that it came from God, not just from me. Uh, and that's a problem that some people do have. You know, like, well, who gives you, and we'll hear it all the time, who gives you the authority to talk for God? God talked to me. That's who, that's who gives me the authority. Uh, that was asked of Paul many a times. Well, by what authority do you preach this message of Christ? Well, God gave it to me. And, you know, we need to be able to understand 
People always want to know who gave you the authority. All right? You're coming in the name of the government or whatever. Who gave you that authority? What, you know, who was the person? What's your chain of command that brings this to you? And as Christians, we're directly under God, and we can use that. But even then, there probably should be some kind of chain of command, you know, depending on what you're doing. If you're getting ready to start a, start a ministry within a church, you probably should have talked to the pastor at some point in time to, to make sure that the pastor at least knows what God has told you to do. Uh, uh, so there are chains of command that we should follow, and David here is a, has a priest in his midst, so he's going to go through you know, the chain of command that has been established within that, that organization. David is very good about honoring authority. It's why he's not going to touch Saul until he was absolutely sure that God told him to go kill Saul and God hadn't told him to kill Saul. So he says, okay, God, as long as you've got Saul in place and you haven't told me to kill him, I'm not going to go against him. And you've got to think, David's a warrior. He's been a high leader in, in Saul's army. If he had gone into pitched battle with Saul, he probably would have won. Because it's obvious through all these battles that David's the better general. Okay, David's been sent out to battle all these different with small groups and come back victorious every time he's gone out. He probably could have taken Saul in an instant, you know, even in the flesh, without God. And he's going, no, I'm not going to, I am not going to put my hand against the one that God anointed. And he was very patient to wait for God to take him out. And uh, this is, we see this all through this. You know, he's running from Saul. He's hiding from Saul. And we're going to see at least two occasions where he could have killed Saul. Okay, and he says, no, I'm not touching God's anointed. A great message to all of us when we think, you know, well, you know, this, this leader of this church is not doing a good job. God says, don't touch the anointed. You know, if you have a problem with a pastor, not, we don't, not that we have one in this church, you know, but if you have a problem with a pastor, then you go to the pastor individually or you leave the church to find a different church that, you can, that God is leading you to. Because God says, I've, picked that, I've put that person in place. And over the years, I've seen people attack pastors and, and suffer greatly for their attacking of a pastor. And, you know, it's like, you know, many of them, a couple of them, I've told, you know, hey, if you don't like this pastor, go somewhere else. You know, go somewhere else. And uh, it's very important. David is following the procedures at this point in time because that's the procedure. The priest represents the authority, the, the structured authority. He would be like the pastor. Uh, and David saying, I'm going to go honor him. You know, and, you know, go, and so he goes to him and he says, you know, uh, we've heard that Saul's coming against him, and he asks two questions. Will Saul come, and will the people deliver me? And God says, yes, Saul's coming, and yes, the people will deliver you. And, you know, this almost makes sense. I don't think David was real upset with the people being willing to deliver him because it's, it means saving their own skin, their own necks. I mean, if they protected David with the attitude that Saul has, they would have been treated as traitors. And he probably would have destroyed the entire town and everything in it to get to David. And, and David understands this because what did he do to the priests? The 85 priests and their town, he destroyed them all. Okay, so David understands, you know, he's, and I don't think he's holding it against these people that they were going to be willing to trade. It probably disappoints him, you know, these people, I've just delivered these people and brought their stuff back and, and they're not willing to protect me. But he also understands it on, from the other side you know, can we stand up against Saul and his army? Probably not. When you're in a town, it's, it's not there. So David sends all of his people out. And you notice what he says here uh, in verse 13. Then David and his men, which were about 600, arose and departed out of Keilah and went wherever they would go. So in other words, all 600 of them just scattered. They didn't go together to draw attention. It's like, Okay, we're going to slip away. They went where, wherever they would go, and they're going to get back together later on. But he goes, we're just going to scatter. And that keeps it from Saul being able to, you know, you have 600 people all in one place. It makes it pretty easy to follow. Uh, you get to this city, and there's a, there's a trail. You can't move 600 people without a trail. Okay. Uh, but being scattered, 
there's lots of trails, but you know, it's pretty easy to lose a trail with one, per, you know, one or two, three, four people than 600. Yeah, he's really after David. He's after David, but he, you know, following 600 people, he would have found David if all of them had stayed together. So they all scatter, and David was able to escape. And because David escaped the city, Saul didn't come to the city and, and chase after David. Uh, probably got the report, sorry Saul, you got here, you're coming here too late, David, David, David's gone. So it saved the city. The city wasn't going to have to go in through any problems. Uh, if Saul had shown up to the city and found David gone, he probably would have killed them all in spite just for the sake of, of you know, you, you had David here and you didn't arrest him or whatever. But with David gone, he doesn't come to the city, no, no trouble to the city. And I think David understood this. When he says, God, the, uh, Saul's going to come, he says, okay, I'm going to get out of this city because I don't want what happened to the priest to happen to this city just because I helped them. And so David disappears. And it says, David abode in the wilderness and the strongholds that remained in the mountain wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not. Now, Sith is in uh, the area toward the south of Hebron. Uh, they don't really know exactly where, but somewhere around between Carmel and Jutah uh, is the area of, of Zith. And so David is running around this wilderness area, uh, finding strongholds, caves, whatever, hiding out again. David spends a lot of his life before he becomes king hiding from Saul. And uh, you kind of wonder, you know, David, you've been anointed king. How can you be so patient? And I don't know that I would have been as patient as David. You know, when I was anointed, I probably would have gone up and fought, you know, Saul. You know, God, you made me king. I'm, you know, that means you've rejected him. I'm going to take him. David is so patient to wait for Saul to, to be taken out. And I think he loves Saul in many, in, for the most part. You know, he was the one that administered to them. He sang to him. He, he uh, was taken into his family. And I don't think he wanted to see Saul hurt. And he was just so patient. And it says that Saul sought for him every day, which means he had squads of soldiers out all over the place looking for him. Uh, he had a dragnet going on saying, go find him. Anybody find him. <laughs> and God did not deliver David. And you've got to think, you know, that in and of itself has got to be a miracle. Right, that David was never found. Because if somebody wants to find you, even in that day, they're going to find you. It would be kind of like if our government decided they wanted to find somebody. They're going to find them. You know, usually they're not found because they're just not high enough priority to throw everything at them. And here Saul is pretty much throwing everything he has at them. You know, yeah. Oh, big rewards, promises of, promises of, uh, well, that's what he promised the, the person who killed Goliath, and then he didn't stand behind that either. So, uh, but, you know, there's all kinds of different things that can happen there. You, you put a great, you put out a big enough reward on somebody that people want to turn him in just for the reward. You've got your, all of your army, your police force, your secret services, whatever, whatever they had in that day, and because... Remember, we've talked about this. Nothing new under the sun. Secret Service, police, and sheriffs are not new. They've always been around. They've always had authority. They've always had their contacts within the, within the, the uh, bad guys. If people are surprised, I think it's you. Yeah, and there would be the bribes. There would be the rewards. There would be the people willing to sell them. So the fact that David was not found is really quite amazing. Especially when David didn't hide completely. Would that because God's behind him? God was protecting him. Yeah, that's right. God was protecting him. And this is the thing about it. When you read some of these biographies and things, when God is behind you, so many things are done that make absolutely no sense. I, I remember reading uh, God's Smuggler about Brother Andrew. And some of the things he did were just bizarre. You know, he goes to Red Square and transfers the Bibles from one vehicle to another. And there's some sense in that. You know, you're out in the open. But still, 
how many police officers, you know, would have been in Red Square monitoring it to catch, you know, and yet he didn't get caught. He'd cross borders with the Bibles out in the open and God would blind their eyes, you know. When we're doing what God wants us to do, everything is going to go the way God wants it. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not going to turn you in or, or turn you over to the authorities because we look at the, all the apostles except for John died a martyr's death, so God eventually turned them over. But we also look at the miraculous things they did up until the time they, their death. Uh, you know, the amazing things that happened where God protected them until it was time for them to die. And this has been said so many times, the best place to be is in the middle of God's will because you won't die as long as God's got a plan for you. Okay? Now when God's done with it, and you're, you and it's time for your, you to come home, doesn't matter what you're going to do, he's going to take you home. And this should give us a lot of freedom. You know, we pray, we go, God, what is it you want me to do? And we go do it. And then when God's ready for us to come home, doesn't matter what our plans are, how good the plans are, or how many times we got away with it in the past, God's going to say, it's time to come home. So yes, David was running around doing these things for God. God protected him. And we're going to see always, you know, get to the end of this chapter, we're going to see how God protected him in this particular instance. Uh, all right. So Saul is out there seeking him, and, and David is delivered as he goes all around Ziph. Verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood and strengthened his hand in God. And he said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you, and you shall be king over Israel, and I will be next unto you, that, and that also Saul my father knows and they two made a covenant before the Lord, and David abode in the wood, and Jonathan went to his house. So Jonathan has no problem finding David. <laughs> okay. Uh, God's not in the way of Jonathan finding David. And I'm sure David had his people who were on, on the lookout, you know, saying, hey, if Jonathan's looking for me, you can send him my way. Okay, because remember, David has already told Jonathan, if you've got a reason for me to die, I want you to be the one to kill me. If, you, if there is some reason... You know, a legitimate reason that I have earned death to the, to the crown, Jonathan, you execute me. I don't need it. Don't need, doesn't need to be your father. And Jonathan has always told him, no, you're, you're righteous, you're, you're good. And so Jonathan comes, meets him, and he says, you know, don't fear, don't fear my dad, for he shall not find you and, you, and you shall be king over Israel. Jonathan has always known that David is going to be king. And I love this statement, and I shall be next to you, or, or I will be second in rank to you. Jonathan says, okay, David, you're going to be king, and I'm willing to just take second, second fiddle. You know, uh, not a problem. Not a problem at all with me. Now, we've talked about this. I think in the back of his mind, Jonathan also knew that to prevent civil war, he was going to have to be taken out along with, with his father. Because you would, end up with a, you would end up with a battle. No matter what, there was going to be those who s supported Saul and his family unless they were taken out. And that's what God's going to do at the very end. He's going to take out the entire you know, uh, family of, of uh, King David, uh, King Saul, excuse me, you know, to make room for King David without battle. And even then... The, the general of Israel is going to rise up one of Saul's descendants and say, this is your king, and, and battle with David for about, six, uh, for about 12 years. Uh, so it's going to be a big deal. Uh, 12 years? Anyway, a period of time. <laughs> uh, there's going to be this battle going on you know, as, as they're trying to rise up one of Saul's descendants to, to fight with David. You know, David doesn't just get the kingdom given to him right off the bat. And so we see this whole thing that Jonathan and David come together, make a covenant. I'm sure part of this covenant is, you know, remember you promised to take care of my, my family and not do harm to my family. And David said, yes. And that's been, a, been our theme all along. <laughs> uh, you're going to take care of my, you know, Jonathan's understanding. Take, I need you to take care of my family. Like I said, I believe, even though he says, you know, I'll be number two you know, I'm willing to be number two. 
I think he, in the back of his mind, knows that he's going to die when the time comes. Because it would just be a really hard thing. There's going to be those people that try to raise him up. You're the, you're the, you're the crown prince. You should be king. Even, though God, he, even if he's demurring, you know, saying, no, David's king, God has anointed him, there's going to be this fraction of people that want Jonathan to be king. Besides which, Jonathan's a righteous man as far as we can tell. Jonathan really deserves to be king as opposed to his father. And yet David has been anointed king. David has been chosen king. So there's going to be a big problem if Jonathan lives. And Jonathan's whole purpose is take care of my family. Don't destroy my family for my sake. And he keeps, keeps bringing this up. Verse 19, then came to the Ziphites to Saul to Gibeah, saying, does not David hide himself among us in strongholds in the, in the wood, in the hill of Hashilah, which is in the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all your desire of your soul. Come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And Saul said, Blessed be you, O the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Go, I pray you, prepare yet, and know and see his places where his haunt is, and who has seen him there, for it is told to me that he deals very subtlety. See therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places that he hides himself, and come you again with me with certainty, and I will go with you, and it shall come to pass that, that he that if he be in the land, that I shall search him out throughout all the thousands in Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Moon, in the plain south of Jessamon. And Saul also and his men went to seek him, and they told David, Wherefore he came down unto the rock, and abode in the wilderness of Moron. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David into the wilderness of Moan. And Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. And David made haste to get away from, for fear of Saul, for Saul and his men compassed David and his men around about to take them. All right, so here we see David's hiding out in the area of Ziph, and the inhabitants of Ziph go to, go to Saul. And basically they say, hey, your enemy's down here with us. You know, why don't you come and get him? And that, of course, sounds really good to Saul. And this is part of what happens in this whole thing. Eventually, if you're enemy number one, and we go back to this idea that there was probably, I really do believe there was probably some kind of reward out for the head of David. And they're looking at this, so, okay, we can get a reward, you know, whatever that reward might be. Remember, he gave a reward for the, the killing of Goliath. So much money, your family was not, wasn't going to have to pay taxes, you'd be married to the king's daughter. Good rewards. What the rewards were for people turning him in, I don't know, but I'm absolutely sure there was some kind of, you know, poster wanted, dead or alive, you know, uh, reward, you know, 5,000 shekels or, or whatever it might be. Uh, it doesn't actually say it, but I can very much picture that that's exactly what was happening in David's public enemy number one as far as Saul's concerned. He's willing to ignore all the nations around him to go get David with the entire army. All right? David is important for him to get, and the Ziphites come to him and say, hey, you know, David's living around our area in the wilderness. And, uh, you know, so king, come down and get him. <laughs> and so he says that there, you know, thank you, you've taken kindness on me, you've, you're, 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 you've shown me pity, you've turned my enemy over to me. And he says, here's your job, people. Go find out where he's hiding. I want you to watch David. I want you to watch everywhere he goes, every place he hides, so that when I get the army down there, we know every place he goes. And this is what it says, you know, get to know where his haunts are. Where, where does he spend time? Where does he hide? You guys find out all these different places for me, and I will come down and get him. And the, the land of Ziph is somewhere down there around Carmel and Jedith we were talking about. We don't know exactly where some of these other places are. We don't really know exactly where Ziph is other than that general area of wilderness. And David is hiding there. There's people living there. And, and Saul says, okay, you find him. 
And they arose and went to Ziph in verse 24 before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Mamon, in the plain that is south of Jezreel. So they were going further south, outside of this area. And I can almost picture this. Uh, kings, there's a story of Elisha who keeps telling the king what the enemy is planning to do. So every time the enemy is getting ready to attack him, God tells Elisha, and Elisha tells the king, and the king goes someplace else. And then there's a section in there where it says, the king says, okay, who in this council is betraying me? And then they go, no, it's Elisha, the prophet, is being told by God everything that you're planning to do. I almost think that David had this kind of thing going on with him and, him and the priest or the prophets. Saul's coming to get you. Move out of this area. You know, the Ziphites were ready to turn him over, so he leaves Ziph and goes further south. Did he do it just because he had spies among the Ziphites, or did God say, time for you to move? I believe God told him to, to, to move. So he goes further south, and Saul comes out there, and lo and behold, they can't find David. But he hears that David is now in Enon. And so he goes and chases David down into Enon. And it says here in verse 26, And Saul went down one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. So there's a, just a mountain between the two of them. Now, now a mountain is pretty good defense. Uh, I've often thought how easy it would be for me to go home if I could just go straight over this mountain. <laughs> Seems how Kingman is literally just over this mountain instead of having to go around the mountain. If there was a highway over the mountain or through the mountain, Kingman is just on the other side of that mountain. It would be really close. But you know, this is what I'm saying. You got Saul on one side of a mountain, David and his men on the other. And it's still a dangerous place because you get to the end, you know, Saul could still send his men around both sides of the mountain and some of them going over the mountain to, to get hold of David. But we have here a dangerous place. And David is a little concerned. Because David has his entire army and he's ready to surround David. And so David is not in a very good place at this point. And it may be that Saul is on both sides of his army, may be on both sides of the army, and Saul himself is only on the other side of the army. We don't, because David says he's, that Saul is ready to encircle him. He's got some very big concerns. He's been outmaneuvered in physical uh, human terms. It says here that David's concerned that he's about to be encompassed. I think Saul's army is actually coming down both sides of the mountain, but Saul is on the other side and he doesn't have as much to worry about from, from Saul's army, but he also understands that I'm in a place where I can be circled, you know, encircled. I only, I only have 600 men. Saul's bringing all the, all the army, all the army and people of Israel against him. And however many that means, but you know, we've read in various places that that means hundreds of thousands of people against David's 600. I love this, what God does in verse 27. And there came a messenger unto Saul, saying, Haste you and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines, Therefore they called the place Shelahamalokoth, or the Rock of Division. <laughs> David is almost in a place where he's to be captured. And what does God do? He says, Saul, I've got something a little more important for you to do. The Philistines have invaded. Okay. Now Saul has to make a decision. Do I continue going after David, who's really not hurting my people, or do I go deliver my people from the Philistines? And as a good king, he makes the right decision to go deliver his people from the invading army. He, and I don't know that he realized how close he was to capturing David at this point. You know, he's been following David. He's close to him. David's very aware of how close he is to being captured. And God delivers him. Do we understand what this means for us? God delivers us so often, maybe even without us knowing completely how well we've been delivered. And sometimes we do know. You know. It's an amazing thing when God steps in to our life and does something for us. And this is one of the things I love about reading the biographies because they understand how God steps in at the right moment.
you know, and I and I love the stories of George Mueller praying for the stuff for the for the orphans and getting it at just the last moment. You know, how often does God deliver at the last moment? When I was living by faith, all my almost all my money always came at the last moment. When it was time for a bill to be paid, the money would come in. God does things at the last moment because he's really saying, are you going to trust me? Even though it looks like I'm, I'm not going to manage this, are you, are you going to trust me? And here David is, almost captured, and God delivers him. And, you know, you can almost picture David, I've got Saul's army all around me. You know, if I move, I'll grab their attention. If I stay here, they're going to find me anyway. So, God, what do I do? And God gets him to move the whole army. We're going to see the same thing in later years in Israel where the, ar- where the army is getting ready to take Jerusalem and the people repent and God says, okay, guys, here we go. There's another battle for you to go to. God oftentimes takes the armies out by giving them a, a bigger target to go after. You know, God will do this for us over and over and over in our lifetime saying, okay, I'm going to protect you. And sometimes it's an amazing thing how God protects God, you did what to, to bring this protection? You, how did you do that? <laughs> you know, or, and we look in there and say, wow, God, you're just so wonderful the way you protect and, you, and, you, and guide. And David is delivered from Saul by Saul getting this message that, uh, hey, the land's under attack. You know, get the army. You know, instead of having the army over on the west side of the country, on the east side of the country, you better get over here to the west where the Philistines are attacking us. And Saul, as a good king, decides, okay, David's not worth it, worth going over at this moment. I'm going to go get the Philistines. And huh? Wasn't one of his crazy moments where David became such an infatuation that he had to get David. It's all of a sudden, okay, I'm the king of the people. I've got to go. I've got to go defend my people. And then it says, David went up from thence and dwelt in the strongholds at En Gedi. And En Gedi is just east of Hebron by the Dead Sea. And it's a wilderness area. And uh, he's going to hide out in that, in that area for, for a while. And... Uh, so we're going to see all these different things, and we're going to then get to see in the next chapter, it's one of those times when David could have killed Saul and didn't. So we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for your love and your care. We ask you to keep us in, in confidence with you, Lord. Show us that you love us so much that you will deliver us in your way, in your time. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.